also want to mention, I don't know if you've noticed this, but it's uh, election season. Anyone else notice that? <laughs> I mean, it's that season, right, where there are signs just plastered all over culture. My, my mailbox is filled with postcards and, and, and posters and, and flyers. I'm even getting a lot of text this year, which is new for me. Like, I'm getting a lot of text now. And, and it's this season where we're watching football and, and uh, advertisements come on. I mean, we're just inundated with messages of different individuals vying for our vote so that they could be our voice for culture. I mean, it's a powerful moment. And again, I want to encourage you and remind you as Christians, like it's important for us to vote. But I was thinking this week, all these millions of dollars and millions of hours focused on, on getting the voice of the people centered on, on electing one person to be our voice for culture. It made me wonder, what would I say if, if I was given that opportunity? Have you ever thought of that? I mean, if you were given an opportunity to have a moment before Congress, what would you say? If some strange, weird conglomeration of events lifted your voice up above millions of others for you to address the brokenness and needs of culture, what would you focus on? Maybe you'd focus on border security. Maybe, maybe you'd focus on inflation. Maybe you'd focus on gas prices, equity and fairness in life. If you're given the opportunity to have your voice lifted up among everyone else's, what would you focus on? What would you say? That's what I love about the second part of Acts chapter 17, because that was a scenario that happened for the Apostle Paul. In the regular goings-on in his life, the Apostle Paul suddenly found himself before the ruling authorities of culture. And of all the things that he could have mentioned, and all the concerns he could have addressed, Paul focused on one thing. If you want to know it, I want to invite you to join me in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 17. I'd like to show you what Paul focused on in hopes that maybe it's something, A, you need to hear, or B, maybe we need to reorient our thinking and maybe helping us remember what we should be focusing on in our lives today. Acts chapter 17, the book of Acts is the fifth book of the New Testament. We've been going through it, Acts chapter 17. If you find yourself visiting with us today, we're in the middle of a second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. And Acts chapter 17 in this missionary journey has not gone well from the very beginning. I mean, it, is, it has been hard and difficult and challenging every step of the way. Even before the missionary journey began, there was a, a sharp disagreement. That's Bible talk for a huge brouhaha between Paul and his mentor, Barnabas. As a result of that disagreement, there was a division between the two friends. And they ended up traveling in two very different directions. Barnabas went one way. 
And Paul went his way. This is the map that we've been following along our second missionary journey. And thank you to those who thought it would be helpful for me to have a laser pointer. I'll try not to aim it at your eyes. But this second missionary journey, it started with difficulty and it continued that way. Paul began his missionary journey and right here in the middle of the map, there's this time to where there was confusion. There was a lack of clarity on what God wanted Paul to do. Paul wanted to go one way and the Holy Spirit blocked him. Paul wanted to go another way and the Holy Spirit blocked him. I mean, Paul had these desires in his heart, not once, but twice God corrected him. And so in the middle of this map, in the middle of the journey, Paul had this issue where he was just wandering. He finally ended up at Troas right here in the, in the top of the map. I mean, he couldn't walk any farther. It was there in Troas where Paul had a vision of a man in Macedonia saying, come, Bring the gospel to us. And so Paul did, after a time of confusion, Paul ended up in Philippi, right there on the top of the map. Paul was falsely imprisoned and beaten there. He continued on to Thessalonica. He was kicked out of there. Paul then went to Berea. He was kicked out of there. And I want to remind you something. Acts chapter 17, let's look at verse 14. Right after all this trouble in Berea, look at verse 14. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea. Paul, the safest place for you to go is the middle of the ocean. Get on a boat and go. And Silas and Timothy remained there in Berea. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible they left. So Paul finally lands in Athens. Athens was a great city with an amazing culture. It was the political and intellectual capital of the region. It was the historic home of Plato, the adopted home of, so of Aristotle and a number of other thinkers even more than its political importance and historic importance. It was a place of great beauty. And there's many people who think there is yet to be a city that has been built and developed that rivals the beauty and splendor of Athens. But among all its incredible history, historic importance and culture and architectural beauty, that it had become what once was a beacon of beauty had descended into irrelevance. Let me show you a verse. It's actually a little bit later in, uh, in, in chapter 17. Look at how it describes Athens. It said, now all the Athenians and strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling and hearing something new. I mean, this once great city, right, that was the, the cultural beacon for the region. That was a city of importance for thought and philosophy. Had descended into this culture of just a bunch of old has-beens talking about what once was and once may be. Everyone talking about everything and accomplishing Nothing. 
The once great and influential Athens had faded into a group of has-beens arguing about anything and everything and accomplishing nothing. Got me thinking this week, what would I do if I was in a culture like that? What would I do in a city or a state or a nation that once boasted greatness and influence and clarity and focus but now seems to be fading away into arguing about nothing and accomplishing nothing but fading into greater and greater insignificance and irrelevance. If you found yourself in that culture, what would you do? Maybe you'd leave. Maybe you'd just hide away with people that think like you and look up and say, come Lord Jesus, quickly come. But that was the setting the Apostle Paul found settled in. He went to Athens and the plan was to just sit there and wait for his friends. I'm sure the people from Berea that dropped him off said, Paul, please stay out of trouble. Just rest. It's been a hard trip. Paul's probably still healing over from the beating he took in Philippi. Paul, relax. We're asking you, just Stay in the shadows. Don't engage. Take a sabbatical and rest. But those of you going through the book of Acts with us, you know, Paul's never going to do that. Paul's centered in Athens, a city on the decline. And let me show you what happened to Paul. Acts chapter 17 Starting in verse 16, it says this. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, like Paul was doing his best. Good for you, Paul. He's trying to stay out of trouble. He's trying to just keep his eyes down. Don't notice anything. Don't say anything. Paul's just doing his best. Waiting for his friends. Paul was waiting for them in Athens. But his spirit was being provoked within him as he observed the city full of idols. That term provoked means that he was prodded to move by the Holy Spirit, that there was something that he saw that grieved the Holy Spirit so much that Paul couldn't just sit by and watch it happen any longer. He had to do something. I mean, Paul witnessed something. It just stirred him up, riled him up. It angered him. It angered the Holy Spirit inside of him that he couldn't sit on the sidelines any longer. If you notice what it was, is a city full of idols. Historians believe that around this time, the city had roughly 10,000 people in it, and the city had roughly 30,000 idols. There's so many idols in Athens, they likely outnumbered people three to one. They would line the streets of the marketplace. I mean, many people believe that there are so many idols that nearly every god made up by man through culture was given a place of honor in Athens. It's one great city. Great thinkers. Amazing philosophy. 
drowning in idolatry. And now it's just too much for Paul to bear. Look at what he did. Paul did what he always does. Look at verse 17. So he began reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. I mean, that's Paul's favorite tool, favorite resource. He reasoned. That term reasoning describes give and take dialogue between people and Paul. Paul would make a statement of truth and then give people an opportunity to interact, to ask questions, to disagree. He reasoned, he dialogued, he was trying to open their eyes so that they might see the truth of Jesus as he does. He's reasoning with them in the synagogue, in the marketplace. Evidently, he was creating quite a stir. Look what happened in verse 18. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. The Epicurean, there are two main parties of thought in that culture. The Epicureans were a group that believed everything happened by chance, that there was no God, and if there was, it was a God that didn't really matter and didn't involve himself or herself in culture. They believed that their chief goal in life was pleasure, either physical pleasure or other forms of pleasure, such as peace and serenity in life. By the way, they didn't believe in an afterlife. They didn't believe in eternity. So there's no need for a resurrection and no reality of such. You had the Epicureans. You also had the Stoics. These people were pantheists, that all deities were part of one world God. They focused on self-discipline and self-control. In their minds, pleasure wasn't good and pain wasn't bad. They believed that they are... In the midst of pleasure or pain, we're expected to be unmoved by feeling. We want to build the opportunity to not overreact to any situation. Epicureans were committed to enjoying life. Stoics were committed to enduring life. So Paul's in the courtyard of this once great city that is descending quickly into irrelevance. Paul's reasoning, interacting with them, it's causing a stir in a crowd. So the two main philosophical voices start coming in and interacting with Paul. Look what they say. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others would say, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. A phrase, idle babbler, originally it was used to describe a little bird that's gathering sticks and twigs and seeds, but would later grow to describe a vagabond, someone who was peddling something they didn't fully understand. Paul was just a hobo, a bum, walking through town, taking advantage of simpler minds. That was what many people thought. So Paul began to just do what he does in Athens. And look what happens after it causes this stir and people are wondering what to do. Look at verse 20. It says, for you are bringing some strange, or sorry, verse 19. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. The Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. 
Areopagus, the term not only describes a hill that overlooked the marketplace of Athens, but the place the Supreme Court of this region ruled. I found this on the web. I'll just move on. I don't want to know what Siri found. The Areopagus, it's not only a hill, but it's the location for the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court oversaw religion, philosophy, thought, politics, like they were that ruling class, that ruling body of that culture in the region. All of a sudden, Paul finds himself being brought before the Areopagus, the rulers of that area. And by the way, this is the group, this is a group that uh, the Socrates met with. This is the group that, that put the end to him. So I want to make, I want you to be very clear. This is a big deal where Paul was brought before the government of this area and the people brought them in asking like, please help us understand. Is this guy right? Is this guy wrong? What does he do? Paul has this opportunity to go right before this crowd. And again, it gives me a question like, what would I say in that moment? Would I become sheepish? Would I focus on politics, morality, the decline of their culture? What would you focus on? Those of you who know the Apostle Paul have been going through the book of Acts, you know what he'd focus on. Let me show you his message, verse 22. First thing I want you to notice when Paul is meeting up with these people is Paul's attitude. I want you to witness and think about how he's addressing this group. Or his voice is lifted among the thousands to where he's the one voice that this ruling council is listening to. This is what Paul says, verse 22. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and he said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Again, I want you to remember, Paul has come out of three cities. He's been beaten and imprisoned. He's been kicked out of two other cities and he's been called a bum by the, by the main thinkers of this community. Man, if I was the Apostle Paul, I'd be going into this area on fire. The Apostle Paul was a Pharisee. He was trained by the greatest Jewish thinker of not only his time, of all time. He was discipled by Jesus Christ himself and he's filled with the Holy Spirit in the middle of Athens. Man, Paul could have roasted these guys. But that has never been Paul's style, has it? Paul has this unique ability to have miraculous restraint and compassion because Paul's focus, remember, I will do all things for all people and hope that they will see Jesus as I do. And Paul will become anything he needs to and absorb anything that he ought to to help people see who Jesus is. So 
So when Paul is brought up where his voice is lifted up among everyone else, Paul's still focused on the gospel. I love how Paul does it. Paul's saying, hey, I was walking through the marketplace and I saw this one idol, it says to an unknown God. Now many historians link that back to a disease that ravaged Athens a generation before. And that community believed that it's because they left a God out. Of all 29,999 gods that were there, they forgot one. And that God got mad and gave them a disease that ravaged their culture. So they created a catch-all. Just in case they forgot a God, just in case they missed a God, we're going to give you that. We'll worship you. Any God that we've yet to meet, that we've yet to understand, that we're yet to know about, we want to worship you too. So Paul says, hey, I noticed this God, the God that you claim that you know you might have missed. Let me tell you about him. And he used that term, look at the end of verse 23, he says, this I proclaim to you, that term proclaim, man, it's power, it's declared boldly and announced powerfully and confidently. Man, Paul had this great ability to show great restraint when it came to his rights and freedoms, but great boldness and power when he talked about God. I was thinking this week, what a great balance. I wonder, how do you feel you do with that? There's something the Apostle Peter wrote the early church in the midst of their struggles, in the midst of their persecution. Man, when you feel like everyone's coming out to get you, and you feel like everyone's against you, and everyone disagrees with you, man, there's something that bubbles up in us, and we just want to defend ourselves. Look at what Peter encouraged the early Christians then. He said, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Look at this, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's within you. Man, always be ready for that opportunity when your voice will be lifted up among everyone else's. Be ready to give a response. Be ready to let them see Jesus through your eyes. But with gentleness and reverence and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Now, don't give them something to persecute you about. Elsewhere, Peter says, look, if they persecute you for righteousness, glory to God. But if they're persecuting you because of your arrogance, because of your greed, because of your belligerence, that's on you. This isn't just something that the Apostle Paul has in his life. It's something that we are all supposed to have in our lives, this attitude, always being ready for when God gives us the opportunity, lifts our voice above the masses. We're prepared to give a response. But with gentleness and reverence, respectfulness, Recognizing that people are doing more than evaluating our words. They're evaluating our life and our tone 
and our focus. Paul had more than a great attitude when his voice was lifted up. Look at Paul's message. The first thing we see is Paul's attitude. We want to take note of it. It's something we want to continue to equip ourselves and grow in ourselves to have this ability to interact, to reason with people that don't see God as we do. That we can disagree. We have to labor and work. We want to recognize Paul's attitude, but we also want to recognize Paul's message. The first thing that Paul focuses on is his message, is the greatness of God. Look at what he says in verse 24. Paul says, look, I'm going to proclaim to you about this unknown God. I'm going to open your eyes. And look how he describes the greatness of God. Verse 24, he says, the God made the world and all things in it. A term made, handcrafted, to manufacture, to cause to be, to construct something with one's hand. Interesting note, when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, this same word made that Luke uses in Acts is the same word used to describe what God did in Genesis 1. Paul begins proclaiming about God that they have yet to see. He says, number one, this God made everything. He handcrafted the world and everything in it. And as a result, look at this. Look at it. He says, he made the world and all things in it since he is Lord of heaven and earth. A term Lord, term you describe ruler, master, owner of everything. Listen, you have 30,000 gods in your town. That unknown God, he's the one that made everything. He's the one who is the ruler, owner, and master of everything. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. I love this. He does not dwell in temples made with hands. Look, he doesn't live in what you made. You live in what he made. Do you see that? Look, God doesn't need you to build him a house. He needs you to recognize you're living in his house. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Look at this. God made everything. He's the ruler and master and owner of everything. Look at the end of verse 25. He himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. That term gives He's so great. He not only made everything, he's master of everything, but he's the author of life. He's the giver of everything. Everything flows from him. Verse 26, there's that term made again. He made from one man every nation of mankind, handcrafted, manufactured from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, Look at this, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Determined, term means that God decided, appointed, designated the boundaries of life. Man, Paul is describing God. He handcrafted everything. He is the ruler, master, and owner of everything. He gives life. He is the essence of life of all creation and he determines when life begins he determines when life ends 
That's his responsibility as one who made it, as one who rules it, as one who gave it. He determines their appointed times. Look at verse 17. Paul continues. Why is God doing all this? What's God's purpose? Look at verse 17. They would seek God. Man, not only is God so great, but he desires a relationship with you. He wants you to seek him. And look how he describes that seeking. I love it. That you would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him. Grope, it does find someone who's in the dark trying to find the light switch in pitch black. It's as if someone who is blind is finding their way down the street, unable to see where they're going, just trying to not bump into anything important. That you might grow for him, that you're seeking him, you're looking in the dark for him, you're so desperate to do it. You're searching everywhere for him and you find him. And look at this, though he is not far from each one of us. In all of God's greatness, he created, manufactured everything. He's the ruler of everything. He's the author of life. He's determined everybody's beginning and everybody's end. That is how great and splendid God is. And yet he wants a relationship with you so bad that you're fumbling around trying to find him. Little did you know he's right behind you the entire time. Verse 28, for in him we live, move, and exist. Man, even though you don't want to recognize God, God recognizes you. As even some of our own poets have said, we're also, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art and thought of man. You want to know God? It's not by creating all these foolish images on the side of the street. It's not erecting temples and huge campuses. I love how the Apostle Paul said it in Romans Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Paul's like, I want to make sure you understand the greatness of God. But he continues. Doesn't just want you to know the greatness of God. Paul said, God and all of his greatness and splendor wants a relationship with you, but listen, now is the time to act. Verse 30 says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, I mean, God's been patient. That's what Paul's saying. Look, in the greatness of God who wants a relationship with you, man, he's overlooked a lot of stuff. He has been patient Look at what Apostle Peter said, 2 Peter 3, 9. 
says, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, talking about his return, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, for all to come to repentance. Paul goes into verse 30, man, God is great, and he has been extremely patient. But God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world. The term judge, to evaluate his creation based on his power and he will condemn their sin. Paul says, listen, God is great. He created everything. He rules everything. He's the author of life. He is the boundaries of what exists. And he wants a relationship with you. And you're groping for him. You're trying to find him in the dark. And he's right behind you. Paul says, but listen, God's been patient. He has allowed you to go on your path. And it's time for you to acknowledge God. Because a day of judgment is coming. Man, every time the Bible talks about a day of judgment, it is not good. So Paul says, now's the time to repent. There's a lot of misunderstanding, I think, in our culture about repent. I think as a culture, we see repenting as apologizing. And so we find ourselves going back to God time and time and time and time again, apologizing for the same things. Those of you who know me for a while know I have this great book. It's called The Little Hiptionary. It's for old guys like me to be able to understand what young people like you are saying. And I have a new one now. People on my staff have said that even my hipptionary is too old. So now I have the Gen Z dictionary. But this is from the hipptionary. There's this phrase that I believe people still use. Maybe you've heard it. My bad. You hear it? You hear that in life? Maybe you use it. My bad. Here's the definition of my bad. An acknowledgement of fault or blame without apology or remorse. Here's an example. My bad, is that all you have to say after burning down my house? (laughs) Did I just step on your toe? My bad. It's an acknowledgement of fault or blame, but it's not an apology and it's not a change. See, repent, when the Bible speaks about repent, it's not just an acknowledgement of your failure. It's a commitment to change direction. That's repent. Repent isn't just saying I'm sorry. Repent is saying I'm sorry and changing direction. The Apostle Paul says, listen, God's great. He created everything. He rules everything. He owns everything. He manufactures all life. He ordains the beginning. He controls the end. He is the beginning and the end, the alpha, the omega. God is great. He is everything, and he's right behind you. And he's done waiting. He's been patient. It's time for you to acknowledge his existence to repent of your arrogance and change direction of your future. 
Paul says, time's ticking. The day of judgment has been set. And you are hereby on notice. Got me to thinking this week. Have you repented? I think we're a culture where we apologize. We're a culture where we apologize for things we don't even think we did, but for the sake of peace, we'll apologize anyway. Anyone do that? Okay, just me. We're a culture of apology, but we're not a culture of repentance, are we? Have you repented? Acknowledging your failure. Committing to change your direction. I know some of you might feel like, Brian, there's just too much to repent of. Like it's pointless, Brian, I'm lost in this, I'm stuck in this, I'm a slave to this. So just in case, if there's anyone in here or watching online where you feel like repentance is impossible for you, let me tell you why it's not. So there's one last point to Paul's message. He wanted everyone to know the greatness of God and the coming judgment of God. But he also wanted people to understand the powerful grace of God. Look at what he says, verse 31. He has fixed a day, it is set, in which he will judge the world in righteousness. He will judge the world in righteousness. He will be fair. He will be honest. He will honor his word. Man, I don't know about you, but especially as I go into political season, I don't know who to trust. Do you? I feel like everyone will say anything for the privilege of having their voice lifted above everyone else's. Paul says, that's not God. God judges in righteousness, in truth. He is fair. He will honor his word. He will judge the role in righteousness, but Paul's not done through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And God has demonstrated his ability to do this through Jesus Christ. Paul says, I want you to understand when Paul is given the opportunity to have his voice lifted among the thousands, Paul focused on one thing of greatest importance. It wasn't their school of philosophy. It wasn't their city management. It was that they would see God for who he is. His greatness his coming judgment and his obvious and proven grace. Look at how Paul says it in Romans 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, you have peace with God. And it's not just an absence of hostility. It's a contentment. It's a fulfilled relationship In Hebrews, when you have that peace, you can go boldly to the throne of God, confidently that he'll hear you. Look at what the apostle John said, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
when Paul is given the opportunity to have his voice lifted among the thousands of that city, Paul focused on one thing, declaring the gospel. Man, everything else is going to burn away, but not their souls. Paul's focus is that they would see God as greatness, understand his judgment, and respond to his grace and mercy. As we wrap up, let me then show you Paul's impact. Here it is, verse 32. How'd it go, Brian? Is this another place where Paul's going to get beaten, stoned, imprisoned, chased out of town? Look what happens, verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. Sneer, some scoffed, joked, snickered at what Paul said. Big biblical butt right there. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. Hey, hey, Paul, we want to talk more. We're interested on what you're saying. We need more information. We want more dialogue. We're not ready to write you off, but we're not ready to commit our lives either. And look at verse 32 or 33. So Paul went out of their midst. Big biblical butt right there, verse 34. But some men even joined him and believed among who also were Dionysus, Areopagite, sorry, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. When Paul had a chance to address the leaders of culture, it's important to notice what he shared. He didn't focus on their broken culture, their empty reasoning, or the decline into oblivion. He focused on the greatness of God. He focused on the pending and coming judgment of God and the obvious and powerful grace of God. Some joked and wrote him off. And maybe some of you are here writing him off. Some wanted more dialogue. Some wanted to know more. And maybe you're here saying, Brian, I need to learn more about what this is. And others of you might be here ready to believe, ready to devote your life to Christ. Might I give one more option for response? Because I think there's many of you here that say, Brian, we've already done that. We've repented, we believe, we're right with God. Then can I ask, are you committed in your heart to focus on the one thing that truly matters in life? To using every opportunity and being ready for when God lifts your voice among the thousands of others, you'll be ready to give a response for the hope that's within you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Let's pray. Jesus, as a church, we're here today because we believe in your power. God, many of us are here because we believe in your power of forgiveness. God, we have repented and given of our lives to you. God, we have committed our futures to you. And God, our desire is to be a bold and powerful reflection of your grace and your truth in our culture today. God, there are great similarities between Athens and our culture now. 
So God, I pray you give us the boldness of Paul in our lives. God, give us restraint. But God, give us courage to proclaim your truth as well. God, I pray for people who are here that have yet to see you as I do, that are still buried in their sin, that are still drowning in their guilt and shame, who, who have believed that maybe you're around, but you have nothing of desire for them. God, may you open their eyes that they can see you as I do. God, even today, may you give them the humility they need to repent, to confess their brokenness, and commit their lives to live towards you as well. And Jesus, I pray that you would hear them and respond as you've promised. You'd forgive them of their sins, that you'd cleanse them of all unrighteousness, that you'd restore their hearts and renew their lives. And Jesus, may you fill them with the Holy Spirit as you've promised that will lead them and guide them in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. And God, may you give them peace today a peace that's beyond human comprehension as they learn to trust you, to know you, and to walk with you the rest of their days. God, we ask you continue to make yourself evident to our culture and they might give their lives to you. Pray everything in Jesus' name. Amen.